Welcome to worship. It's good to see you all. Good to be with you here uh, to worship God. Before we get started, I'll mention a couple things from the back of your bulletin and something that's not on your bulletin that you'll want to know if you're a lady. Um, the first thing is that the youth are meeting tonight across the street for real this time. Um, the Capertons are going to be hosting uh, breakfast for dinner uh, for our youth. Crepes? Oh, breakfast. Yeah, breakfast for dinner. Uh, crepes might be nice, too. Um, so look forward to that. Um, Church Life Night is going to continue this Wednesday at 6 p.m. If you can make it, uh, come for the meal, for the fellowship, for the teaching time. Uh, it will be a great time. We hope you can make it. And the last thing I want to announce is uh, there is a new Bible study for women beginning on September 26th. A new Women's Bible Study, September 26th, which is a Monday morning at 11 a.m. And it will be look, going through Psalms. And the first Psalm will be Psalm 77, if you want to read ahead of time. There will be a preschool Bible uh, lesson as well in nursery. So there's child care, if that is uh, uh, a reason to go or that's a reason to keep you from going. So if you're a lady of any age, uh, we invite you to come to that Bible study. Um, again, it's September 26th, 11 a.m., Monday, at the Family Life Building. Those are our announcements this morning. Uh, God is bringing us here by spirit to worship him. So take a few moments as the music plays to um, quiet your hearts and your minds and ask God to help you this morning as we go into worship. Good morning. As we've already been reminded to prepare our minds and our hearts for worship, we are invited and called to worship by the Lord our God in Scripture. I ask and invite you to stand with me for our call to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalms 95, verses 1 through 3. 
O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. If you would remain standing and take your hymnal, turn to hymn number 700 as we continue to worship. Please pray with me. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving thanks for this day, this time in which we can gather and worship you corporately. We give thanks for the freedom in which we have to do so. We give thanks for this church and what it means to each person here and its congregate members, what it means to this community. We pray, O oh God, at this very moment that you would be truly worshipped in this place at this time. We pray that you would be glorified and worshiped across this land. We give thanks that there is a time each week designated for corporate worship and we recognize and acknowledge that we are by nature selfish for our own desires. And we pray that just in these few moments that we can turn our attention and our focus to you and that you would draw us near to you and you would reveal yourself to us through song, through prayer and through the preaching of your word. Pray that you would be with Matt this morning as he delivers the word. We pray that you would be exalted. We pray that you would, through your spirit, work in our hearts and our minds, that we would grow, learn, and love you in a greater way, and in turn, we would love others as you have commanded. Dear God, we rest in your grace and mercy, but we also know of your mighty power and are in awe and fear of your wrath and for that your redeeming grace your redeeming power is worthy to be praised we pray for this church we pray for the continued work of it the ministries of it outside of this designated hour we pray for and give thanks for our covenant children we pray for the time the season in which our church is in now we pray for those that are to have taken on the responsibility of the pulpit search we give Thanks for their commitment, and we pray that you would bless them and bless their times together. And we pray that you are preparing, as we know you are, our future pastor. We pray for whoever that may be at this very moment, this hour, that you would bless them. We pray that you would grow them, and we pray that you would give us at First Presbyterian Church, Louisville, patience, perseverance, and confidence in knowing that you are a sovereign God. We give thanks for this beautiful day as we see the beauty of your creation, we give thanks for that. And we rest in knowing also that you are a sovereign God, whether it's beautiful weather or it's not. We pray all these things, and we pray as you taught your disciples to pray. 
together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please remain standing. I would like to first read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, as we move into the confession of faith. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. If you would, as we move into our confession of faith, I will read the question from our Heidelberg Catechism, and together we will answer. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? And not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, we always hate all sin with all our heart and delight in all our righteousness. But can those converted to God keep those commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, that throughout our life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that we may be zealous for God and deeds and constantly pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that he may more and more renew us after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you're like me, uh, at some point in your life you have heard or heard something along the lines of that as we get older as Christians, as we follow Jesus longer, we begin to sin less. We sin less in our lives. And unfortunately, um, it's not in the Bible, but fortunately, God gives his people his spirit to sanctify them so that they can fight and defeat sin. When we read in this confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we see different things brought to light about the Ten Commandments and why we learn them, why they are preached, why we are taught these things and called to obey them. And God is at work in each believer. And as the confession says, uh, the Ten Commandments give us a, a growing awareness of our sin. So as we walk with Jesus, as we get older, uh, we grow more and more aware of the sin in our lives. And as we grow closer to Christ, our awareness of our sin against him gets bigger, but his love and his grace and the cross also grow larger in our sight. We end up repenting more and worshiping more the longer that Christ is at work in our lives. So let's take a moment uh, to pray in silence, and we'll let the catechism lead us in the humility that the Ten Commandments really bring us to, which is acknowledging that we are sinners and that we need God, we need his help, and he is eager to give us uh, this help, eager to forgive us. Uh, you can take this time to confess your sin to God. You can take this time to ask God, for understanding of your own heart, of your own sin, you can ask for help to delight, as the confession says, the catechism says, to delight in the righteousness of Christ. Or you can simply pray for the needs in your life or for someone else. So let's take a few moments to pray in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer. <clears throat> 
Let's pray together now. Father, Son, and Spirit, you alone are perfect, and you eternally exist in perfect love where there is no fear or sadness. God, you have graciously extended your mercy to your people who have turned away from you, and now we cry out this morning, Father, help us. God, we ask as the psalmist asks, Make me understand the way of your commands, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. God, we need you to make us understand, because our sin confuses us. God, we pray, help us to recognize our sin, so that it leads us to a place, the psalmist says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Jesus, because of your grace, through faith, we have chosen the way of faithfulness. We have set your rules before our eyes this morning. And we cling to your testimonies, O Lord. We pray, let us not be put to shame. God, we pray together and we have this hope that we will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge our hearts. God, this language is from your word, and it's amazing that you love to enlarge our hearts so that we can walk in your ways, and we pray you would do that. God, we thank you for the good news about Vera Smith's family and how you have healed them. We pray you would give them full recovery and no lingering effects from COVID moving forward. Lord, many of us are on uh, the uh, emails. Uh, We get the emails from the missionaries that are part of this church, and we ask that you would surround the McNeils who are in Africa with encouragement, with good health, and with fruitfulness in ministry. Holy Spirit, we pray you would bring physical healing to your people in this church who are recovering from surgery, or are suffering silently in different ways, or are sick. God, there are many hurting people just in our church alone, and we pray uh, you would have compassion, that you would show them your comfort, Lord, that you would bring people around them to encourage them, to listen, and to be um, people who would love them well in this time. God, as we go through this worship service, would you be glorified and honored by all that we do, all that we hear, all that we sing, all that we confess, all that we pray for. God, you alone are worthy of our worship and praise. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll read from Isaiah 55 um, in preparation for the anthem that's about to be sung. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon.
Would you please pray with me? God, it's not about how much we give, but it's our heart. God, would you give us hearts that are eager to give to your church, to see your kingdom grow, to see uh, people changed by the gospel. Lord, as we give, would you give us hearts that are not um, aiming to be seen uh, in our righteousness? Lord, give us, um, help us to seek your honor instead of the honor of those around us. Lord, use these tithes and offerings for your glory, for your sake, in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue worshiping together with hymn number 528, which is My Faith Looks Up to Thee. Let's continue singing together. You may be seated. If you would, turn in a Bible to Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Mark chapter 2 is where we'll be. And I invite you to turn there and also keep your Bible there so we can reference it, reference it moving forward. We have begun a series in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we witnessed Jesus' unexpected compassion and love for hurting people. We saw Jesus move toward the outcast and leper. We saw Jesus even become an outcast for us. And he went and showed us sort of the foundation of ministry and life and following Christ, which is fellowship with God in prayer. The unexpected Jesus is is on the move. And today's passage, we see the faith of a group of people who bring someone who is paralyzed to Jesus and expect Jesus to respond in grace and compassion and mercy. 
And what comes next leads everyone in the passage to marvel and to worship. So if you would, please read with me in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me for a moment of prayer. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to your word this morning. Uh, preach the gospel to us. Lead us to worship and help us. Help me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to divide this story into two parts. The first part is what I call visible faith. And the second part is seeing something new. So visible faith and seeing something new. As we see in our passage, Jesus sees beneath the surface. He even knows the thoughts that we think. He sees our faith. He sees our heart. He sees our doubts and our skepticism. And the claim that Jesus makes in this story cannot be understated. The scribes, the ones who know the Old Testament or the Bible in their day well, are crying blasphemy in their hearts and in their thoughts. And I don't want us to miss the significance of what the scribes can see and what leads this group of people and this crowd to worship and glorify God. My main point is this, is that this visible faith, the faith that Jesus sees, reveals the power of Christ in our lives and leads us to life-changing worship. Visible faith reveals the power of Christ in our lives and, lead, and leads us in life-changing worship. And I'm going to explain that and unpack that as we go. So let's look at visible faith in the first five verses. Could I, ask, I could ask each of you, uh, what was the last time you saw someone show their faith in such a way that you actually worshiped God because of it, or you said, wow, that person's faith is amazing. I am reading uh, a sort of, an, well, I finished reading last night, an autobiographical book uh, from a man named Daniel Nayari, and it's called Everything Sad is Untrue. And I was interested in this book because it was being acclaimed by many different people, many different groups, some groups that you wouldn't expect to praise a book with such uh, overt Christian themes. So I was interested. And it's the stories of, of this man Daniel's life, beginning in Iran, and then his journey as a refugee to Oklahoma with his mother and his sister. Uh, he and his family uh, were raised uh, Muslims, and he tells stories many different stories, but one of the stories he tells is of, is of his mother coming to faith in Christ in Iran. At the time, and still today in many places, leaving Islam for Christianity is a death sentence 
you will be killed for it if it's found out. And the government system in Daniel's time in Iran would kidnap, it would torture and kill people who had left Islam and were suspected of speaking against Islam, especially those who became Christian. Daniel's mother, as I said, comes to know Jesus by a missionary, and she is so taken by the gospel that she hangs a cross on her rearview mirror in her car, which is uh, as obvious as it can get that she knows and follows Jesus. And soon after, a neighbor tells her to remove it because they're afraid that she's going to be taken. Um, so she removes it from her rearview mirror, and she ends up putting a sticker of a cross that's ten times the size on her window, rear window of her car. Soon after that, while she was shopping for groceries, she's in fact abducted by the government. She's put in a concrete interrogation room that only has a drain in the middle of the room for blood. They asked her for the names of everyone who went to her underground church that the missionary showed her and invited her to, and she refused. And so they gave her, thankfully, one week to give the government all the names of the Christians or the people part of this underground church, or they would kill her whole family. Once they released her, she takes Daniel and his sister and her husband. They flee the country, and sadly, Daniel's father doesn't join them, and he spends the entire book wondering why, why his father didn't join them, but that's a different part of the story. So after spending weeks in embassies, being shipped around different countries, they finally land in Oklahoma. And Daniel's mother would end up remarrying a, a man, a different man, who would end up physically abusing her and Daniel and his sister. And I wanted to read this quote, and this is the end of this story. This is what Daniel says about his mom. The legend of my mom is that she can't be stopped, not when you hit her, not when a whole country full of goons puts her in a cage, not even if you make her poor and try to kill her slowly in the little by little poison of sadness. And the legend is true. I think because she's fixed her eyes on something beyond the rivers of blood to a beautiful place on the other side, how else would anybody do it? Daniel's mother has a visible faith a faith that leads to perseverance and hope in the promises of Jesus. And what's great about our passage is that this visible faith is trust in Jesus' power, in his authority, in his promises. And there are great examples of this in our church and across the world. The faith that Jesus witnesses in this passage is extremely significant to our lives. So I'd like to look at it again. Jesus was at home. The crowds were packed in, and as verse 2 says, he was preaching the word to them. And a group makes their own way to Jesus with this man who is paralyzed. And you can read with me in verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is unexpected. This is an unexpected moment because Jesus, instead of doing anything else, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a moment, I think, where Jesus does this thing where he links physical illness and sin together. He shows us the root cause of all suffering and sickness and sadness, which is sin. And whether this man had sinned and it led to his paralysis or whether he was born this way, either way, Jesus shows us the root cause. And in this way, Jesus gives healing that is not just momentary but is eternal. 
And I think it's great to point out that Jesus doesn't say, hey, somebody stop these hooligans or whatever from literally digging through the roof of either Jesus' house or Peter's house. We're not sure which house he's at. They're literally digging a hole through the roof to get to Jesus. He doesn't say, wait outside, they're messing up my sermon or whatever. He just recognizes immediately the faith of this group of people. He sees their faith. They do whatever it takes to get in front of Jesus. It's visible faith. And as we see this playing out, Mark does this thing again where he shows us that the crowds, again, are not a good thing. And that's concerning. The crowds in Mark... As James Edwards, who's a commentary, uh, someone who makes a commentary on Mark, he said that the crowds are mentioned 40 times in the Gospel of Mark before chapter 10. And in every instance, the crowds are seen um, in a negative way. They're, they're more of a hindrance and an obstacle for people to get to Jesus than they are a sign of good things. The crowds are fickle, and they never turn in repentance and belief in Jesus. And all the times that Mark uses the crowds as an example, they're not a measure of success for Jesus. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He loves them, but they often turn away. Jesus is after the individual heart change, individual faith and we see that in our story. Jesus desires faith and not popularity. So as we move from visible faith, we go into something in this next part of the passage where we see something new, where the crowd sees something they've never seen before. And I'll read it again if you want to follow with me in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The scribes are sitting there, and they believe that Jesus is blaspheming, but they don't say it out loud. And that means, blaspheming means you're, you're speaking lies about God, or you are claiming to be on the same level as God, or as powerful as God, or even more powerful than God. Blasphemy, blasphemy deserved the death penalty. So these scribes are sitting there thinking, this man is doing something that he, he ought to be arrested tried, and killed. They're asking in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's the big question of our passage. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus asks them, which is easier, to heal or to forgive sins? To heal a paralytic and tell him to get up and walk or to forgive his sins? And he shows his authority to do both. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He shows his authority to forgive sins by his authority to heal physical illness. This question of who can forgive sins but God alone is worth thinking about for a moment. And I have my last football illustration of the fall. So if you're sick of it, this is the last one. Um, in order to make sense of this question, we have to keep in mind who the offended parties are when we sin. Who the offended parties are when we sin. There's a pastor whose name is Tom Gibbs. You might know of him. He pointed me to this story from 2016 between uh, LSU and Wisconsin. LSU was ranked number five in the country. Wisconsin was not ranked at the time. They were playing each other. And in the final play, a Wisconsin player gets an interception to seal their victory against LSU. And as the interception was being celebrated, an LSU football player 
comes over and hits the Wisconsin player so hard that he basically knocks him out. And it's seen as one of the biggest cheap shots in college football history, if you're ranking them or something. People do that. Um, so this player gets knocked out. The LSU player gets ejected. He has to sit out the next game. And it's a national story. But as the story goes, which is true, the LSU player actually contacts the Wisconsin player who he knocked out, and he asks the player for forgiveness. And the Wisconsin player turns out to be a Christian. He forgives the LSU player. They pray together on the phone, and it's a wonderful story. But we can think about this differently to illustrate the point, which is imagine if another player from Wisconsin who was not the one that got knocked out called the LSU player and said, hey, I forgive you. I forgive you for hitting that other player. That wouldn't do any good for the LSU player. The, the guy who got hit is the only one who for, can forgive the sin that was committed against him. You can only forgive a sin if it's been committed against you. So in the case of Jesus forgiving the paralytic's sins and why the scribes cry out blasphemy, Jesus is saying, you have sinned against me. All your sin is against me. The only way for that to make sense is if Jesus is in fact God. If Jesus is Lord and God of the universe in Psalm 51, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So when we sin, whether it be against our spouse, against our siblings, against a friend, uh, against someone we never even talked to, we are ultimately and first and foremost sinning against God. And so when we repent, our first action is to say, God, I have sinned against you, first of all, and then we move to the person we have sinned against. This is why the scribes in their hearts are screaming blasphemy, because Jesus is claiming to be God. God is the only one in the Bible who can forgive sins. And what's sad is that the scribes are missing God in the flesh. Jesus brings up this title when he responds to the crowd and to the scribes and to everyone involved. He says, he gives himself the title of Son of Man. And as I was studying this, uh, one commentator was saying that this title for Son of Man was actually perfect for Jesus to use because it didn't have any baggage with it. There wasn't any uh, teaching about the title Son of Man that people would bring to mind when Jesus used it. So Jesus got to kind of craft his own identity under this title, Son of Man, and he'll use different titles. He gets to use and craft his own understanding, but it's also loaded with a lot of messianic themes from Daniel chapter 7. I'll read this. It says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, in this way, is ascribing to himself dominion, glory, and power. He is ascribing a kingdom to himself. He is the king. He's also saying, I am the one that was prophesied about. I am the Messiah, the Son of Man, who has been promised to you, the king who you to, ought to follow. And the crowd, seeing this, those that believe and see the truth of what's happening, 
They worship God. They glorify God and they say, we have never seen anything like this. This is something we have never seen. Someone who is claiming they can forgive sins and not only that, someone who is healing a paralytic, doing something that none of them could ever think to do. And so I want to restate my, my main point and see how it applies here. I said visible faith reveals the power of Jesus in our lives and leads us to life-changing worship. Visible faith is powerful because it reveals the power of Jesus. Jesus has authority to forgive sin because ultimately our sin is against him. He is God in the flesh, and when he says your sins are forgiven, they are truly and really forgiven. And Jesus is looking for people who will trust him, who will believe in him and follow him. He alone is worthy of worship. And we'll worship something in life. Many times we'll worship many different things. And Jesus has authority and power. And what's amazing is he has this authority and this, and this power that we see in the Gospel of Mark, and yet he lays it all down for our sake, for the sake of sinners like you and me. Jesus trusted his Father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, your will be done and not mine. This is visible faith. Jesus exhibited visible faith. He took up a wooden cross in obedience to his Father. For our sake, this is visible faith. He gave up his body to be mutilated and killed so that we wouldn't experience separation from God for our sin. This is visible faith. And now God gives faith that becomes visible to anyone that believes. Um, I meet with some men in our church for an informal Bible study. Excuse me. For an informal Bible study. And I see their faith, and they see mine, when we open up and discuss life. When we share something difficult going on, or if they want help or they want prayer, they need God's help. This is visible faith, and it leads to worship, even in the pain. In any context, when someone repents of their sin and asks for Christ's forgiveness, it leads to worship. Visible faith is many things. I have personally seen the faith of many people in this church over the past few weeks. And it has encouraged me greatly, even as this faith is revealed in very difficult things. It's led me to worship. I've literally said multiple times, wow, God is really doing something here. This person really trusts Jesus God is here in our midst. I am worshiping God in the moment. And so we find that actively trusting Jesus and his care reveals his glory and his power in our lives to ourselves and to those around us. It encourages our faith. And it leads us to worship. There are many people in this room who are following Jesus, who are doing, as John Piper says, uh, acting the miracle of faith, which is fighting sin, which is persevering through difficult times, which is getting counseling or asking for help or asking for prayer. This is visible faith that Jesus gives and that Jesus sees and that we see as well. And so be encouraged because God is at work and this visible faith will continue and so I'm praying that God would bless this church with people whose testimony is this trust in Jesus in the hard times and in the good times, in the slow times, in the uncertain times. I'm praying that we would worship 
Jesus together by faith, who alone is worthy of our praise and honor. These are the things I'm praying for. These are the things I am seeing, and I pray that you see and that Jesus would lead us in together. Would you please uh, pray with me now? Jesus, we have never seen anything like you. And so we put our faith in you. We trust you. You forgive our sin. You lead us in righteousness. And you give us hope that can't be taken away. And so we pray, God, that you would form us into people who the world would look at us and say, we've never seen any, anybody like this. People who persevere. People who have hope even during extremely difficult and hard days. God, bless us. Bless this church with people who we can see in their faith that are trusting in you. And would you lead us in worship as we see your work uh, in the people of this church, in Louisville, and across this world. God, we want to know you better. We pray that you would let that be done. Help us to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for our last hymn this morning, hymn 465, which is Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Let's stand and respond to God's grace with this hymn.
hear God's blessing as you go and respond in faith with your amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.